we're healthy, the planet's healthy. And most people think that they need to put solar on their roofs and buy a car. And there's all these things that are really big that people need to do. And the book really showcases that there's really simple things that transform your health and change the planet. Unhealthy people shit in the river they drink from and call it innovation and progress. We innovate and we develop technology thinking we're so smart, but yet we poison the environment around us. So are we actually that smart or are we really dumb? As we try and create and do all these amazing things at the cost of our air, water, food, the building blocks upon which we exist. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Everybody, welcome back to the Live Damn Well podcast. It's glad to be back after a sort of long hiatus from the podcast. I'll be much more consistent going forward. Uh, if you haven't yet, please check out my book, Return to Human. I published it last year, and it's really about sort of my journey in figuring out what the hell was wrong with me, uh, suffering from insomnia, from anxiety, from depression, uh, from food sensitivities, and uh, sort of IBS. There's always a lot of conflicting information about health, whether it be nutrition or best type of exercise to do or best type of exercise routine. You name it, there's a controversy there and people are hurling vitriol at each other left and right. This was also the case, of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic where you know, you had different sort of health professionals saying, in some cases, totally the opposite, whether it be on vaccines, whether it be on you know, can a nutrient potentially help mitigate some of the negative effects of COVID? Um, Some would say that that's pseudoscience, you know, this sort of war raged on. And to be honest, it's still raging on. And I wrote the book because I was sick and tired of that uh, sort of overwhelming information that nobody really knew how to get to the bottom of it. And I decided that I wanted to, you know, I guess, sort of ambitiously, I wanted to try to figure out what was going on and find the truth with a capital T. And in the book, I discuss really the the debates surrounding the vaccines, not really in a pro-vax or anti-vax sort of way, but I give as much information uh, using the scientific literature as possible, referencing prestigious journals like the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, I try to give a very balanced perspective of that side of the debate uh, the, the sort of controversy surrounding fat and cholesterol, uh, the controversies around, you know, electromagnetic field exposure and how that may affect your health, uh, mental health and the immune system, sleep and the immune system, uh, the gut and, the, and metabolic health. And each one of these chapters not only shows you how 
important all of these aspects of our health are to our functioning immune system, which actually has now been shown to help mitigate some of the effects of COVID-19 and help protect against severe COVID-19. But at the end of each chapter, I also give you very practical takeaways of what you may consider uh, adopting in your own diet or in your own exercise routine uh, or meditative practice that has been shown to improve immune health, among other things, right? It's, it's not only immune health that many of these healthy lifestyle habits can, can improve, but it's also your overall risk reduction of many inflammatory chronic diseases we deal with in the modern world. So please go check that out. The link will be in the description. Finally, I want to shout out two of our sponsors here today on this podcast, which one of which is Hugh Kitchen. You've heard me talk about them before. Hugh Kitchen has incredible dark chocolates. They actually recently came out with an organic grass-fed milk chocolate, which I hear is also delicious, but you know, Dairy and I sort of have a problem, so I have avoided it thus far. I'll probably try it at some point though. They have raspberry-filled dark chocolate. They have like almost like this, um, I forgot what that chocolate was called. It's like the Nestle like crunch. They have something like that, except it actually has good ingredients, right? It doesn't have a bunch of bullshit in it. I recommend you go check that out. They also have a bunch of crackers and paleo uh, delicious stuff that's all organic. Uh, some of it is vegan. Um, all of it is gluten-free. Uh, so if you have any allergies, I definitely recommend you check them out. They are an awesome, awesome alternative to all the other sort of processed stuff that we have uh, in our world today. Also, a big shout out to Jigsaw Health Magnesium. They have this very cool formulation that I've been taking for a couple of years now uh, that actually some of it has uh, two of the B vitamins, B6 and B12, which are sort of cofactors along with magnesium uh, in the formula, which uh, actually release slowly over the entire day. So you'll I'll pop a couple of these pills in the morning and it'll be this slow release technology, which will sort of... Uh, the idea is to increase the amount that you actually, the amount of magnesium that you're actually absorbing, and then the B6 and the B12 uh, should potentially help uh, sort of magnesium do its thing, which is really, really cool. So recommend you check that out. With Hugh Kitchen, you will get a 15% off discount code using the, uh, the code in the description as well as the link. And as for Jigsaw Health Magnesium, you will get $10 off your order using code live damn well. Both of the links and codes are in the description. Now, without further ado, let's talk to Mr. Ante Strica. All right. Hello, everyone. Today I have with me Ante Strika, the founder of Primal Move, TEDx speaker, best-selling author, and podcast host. Ante, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to talk with you today. Thank you. It's so great to see you. So why did you decide to write this book? It's called Primal Move, by the way, and it was very, very recently published. Um, tell us, Tell us all about it. So I published a book this year. Uh, called Primal Move, and it became an Amazon bestseller in the first week. And what it has to do, it's around healing climate change through healing ourselves. 
So it's about the correlation of when we're healthy, the planet's healthy. And most people think that they need to put solar on their roofs and buy a car. And there's all these things that are really big that people need to do. And the book really showcases that there's really simple things that transform your health and change the planet. Things to do with like the water you drink, where you buy your food, what time you go to bed, plastics, such simple things. And the reason why I wrote the book was because at the start of the year, I woke, can I swear on this podcast or not? Absolutely, please do. Okay. I, I woke up with a fucking bee in my bonnet in February and I was like, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book on health and climate change because I had a conversation with a friend and this friend I thought knew everything that I knew around health. She looked healthy. And what I realized was she had no idea of how to overcome some of the health challenges she was suffering. And so I decided to write a book for her and for everyone that I knew that knew in inverted commas what to do, but weren't doing it. And so then I had to think of something that was so motivating that would have so much leverage for them to make a change. And the biggest thing that I found working as a holistic health coach was you needed to find something outside of themselves that had leverage on them to create the change. So for example, if it's a mom trying to change, like I had a mom who was on 10 different medications at one stage and the leverage to get her to stick to it was her kids. Mm -hmm. So what's something that collectively people can rally behind to make the changes needed? Climate change. And it just happened that all the things that I was writing about health-wise, I researched and found the correlation to improving the climate. And so the reason why I wrote the book is so that our our planet and our future generations, our kids and our kids' kids have a planet to inhabit that's healthy and that they can live in harmony with nature by being in harmony with themselves because where we're going is the opposite of that. So that's why I wrote the book. That's brilliant, man. Honestly, when I saw that uh, you sort of connected these two topics that most people think are independent, I was like, yep. Like this is, this is sort of the message that I think needs to get out there more. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you, and actually I wanted to start off with a, with a quote from uh, the first page of your book, which reads unhealthy people shit in the river they drink from. Uh, and I, I read this over a few times because I didn't really understand it. Uh, I think I understand it, but I want to give you the chance to explain. Sure. So I was literally driving my car and one day this sentence pops into my head unhealthy people shit in the river they drink from and call it innovation and progress. And I was like, this will be the start of the book. What that means to me is that we innovate and we develop technology thinking we're so smart, but yet we poison the environment around us. So are we actually that smart or are we really dumb? We're really dumb and unaware. It's like uh, cutting off your nose to spite your face. And so that's what that sentence means is we try and innovate and create and do all these amazing things at the cost of our air, water, food, the building blocks upon which we exist. That makes a lot of sense to me. Once I got through the rest of your book, I was like, yeah, I, I see exactly where he's going with that. Um, and then actually I, I pulled several quotes here. I hope you don't mind from the book, yeah, but uh, the next one was, Obviously, when people think about uh, environmental health and global health and climate change, 
Um, you know, we think of all of the solutions that we read in the media, we listen to in, in podcasts, we listen to on the radio. Uh, and, and you write that the solutions offered by the government and activists and scientists might help, but they're not going to address the underlying cause of the issue. And so what is the issue, which we've already sort of hinted at here? Where the issue? The planet is a reflection of us. The, col- the climate challenges we face are a reflection of the collective ill health of humanity. For someone hearing so- that and thinking like, that's how is it possible that the individual is so crucial? The health of the individual is sort of tied to environmental health. Where do, where do you begin explaining that concept? Okay, I'll pick something really simple. 1% of greenhouse gas emissions is due to obesity. If the world just got in the healthy weight range, we're not talking super fit, healthy weight range, we'd save a forest each year the size of Slovenia. Size of Slovenia, just by being in the healthy weight range. Food waste contributes 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. If we just stopped throwing out food, bought less, composted, had chickens to eat the scraps, you're talking about about 2 million cars off the road in, in emissions. That's what that looks like. So I'll give you one more, and this is, the, this is a great one. The air that we breathe comes from two sources. We all know it's trees. But that's only 50% of where the oxygen comes from. The other 50% comes from the ocean, from something called phytoplankton. Now, phytoplankton work the same way as trees, where they take carbon and with sunlight and then they produce oxy- oxygen. But when we poison the oceans with our plastics, when we buy our plastic bottles that end up in the ocean as microplastics, these impair the phytoplankton's ability to produce oxygen. Right? So essentially, by buying plastic and it ending up in the ocean, we cut off our own oxygen supply. And I think in the book, it was like 99% or I know it's above 90% of uh, people in the world have unsafe levels of air quality according to the World Health Organization. And the way you breathe is the number one way the body detoxifies itself. And I'll find, I'll hit it home with one last thing. The phytoplankton. The way the phytoplankton gets stimulated to grow is through the poo of sperm whales. So as we poison the marine life, we cut off the oxygen supply. We are so interconnected into the whole system. And I, I just, I wanted people to see that their individual choice had a flow and effect and they could actually tangibly see the effect. Because it's so good to say, oh, yeah, you know, don't buy plastic. Well, yeah, so what? Like sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But if you know that if that plastic bottle ends up in the ocean, you're poisoning the oxygen supply and, the, and that has a flow and effect to health diseases for you and your family, right. that's a very different uh, decision to make. Right. I feel like that's probably a, um, for most people, it hits closer to home because it's literally a direct lever where it's like, okay, yeah, it's not just the sea turtles getting their, you know, their necks wrong by plastic. It's literally comes back to my health and the health of my family. Yep. I want to touch on something you said. So you said, was it 1%, uh, 1% of greenhouse gas emission is due to obesity? Yeah. 
Okay, how is that exactly? Is that um, trying to think? Is that like medications that they're using, like increased sort of resources being used to try to uh, like in medical sort of treatments, or or what is that? Where is that coming from? So the the one percent basically comes from them eating too much food, food miles, food waste, mm -hmm. the combination of it. Um, all those things. Okay. Okay. And I, I really liked what you said in the book about sort of, I want to sort of backtrack here. You mentioned this concept of see, do, and get, um, which is, you know, sort of comes from your first principle of think. Um, and, and I want to sort of dive into it a little bit deeper because it made a lot of sense to me um, so could you briefly explain what that means and why it's sort of crucial for us to uh, to sort of start working on our own health? Okay. So I'll backtrack. So you spoke about the first principle is think. Mm -hmm. In a hierarchy of health, the psyche trumps everything. You can think yourself healthy. You can think yourself sick. In the book, there's a specific order each chapter's in. Think, breathe, hydrate, nourish, move, rejuvenate, connect. Think is more important than breath. Breath is more important than hydrate. You can only go three minutes without oxygen. You can go at least three days without water, right? But how many people breathe correctly? And then on top of that, how many people think correctly? So thoughts or the chapter of think is the summary of our thinking and our feeling. So see, do, get. What we perceive in the world or what we see is what we do. So we see an opportunity or we have a belief, right? That someone is a bad person or that someone is a good person. This is what we see. And then that leads to the actions that we take or what we do. And what we do leads to the results we get that reinforce what we believe or what we see. So the perception of how we perceive the world is see, do, get. And when you understand that literally everything in your life is a reflection of your own perception, then you have the ability to break the matrix and take full responsibility for what's being created in your life. And that's what's missing in the world is there's a lot of people that are in adult bodies and they're inside kids because they're not willing to accept that they they are the creator of everything, everything they like, everything they don't like, we create it all collectively, individually, see, do, get. How do you start that process of sort of getting someone to, to understand that? I have to get them healthy because it's only when you're healthy, then do you have the energy to then look underneath the cover of what you buried and what you don't want to take responsibility for. But if you're in mental, emotional, physical, or spiritual pain, you can't look after yourself. That's why in the book, you saw the I, we all. So I'll describe I, we all for everyone. There's a concept in my book where I talk about this model. It's essentially like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's I, we all. First, we need to look after our individual needs. And most people, they think that they're not in survival mode. They really are with how they're thinking, how they're breathing, what they're eating. 
And so when we get someone able to look after their own individual health, then they start to have more energy to then care about other people and help others. That's the I to the we. When we get enough people at the we level, then we get them to the all level, which is how do I help humanity? How do I help the collective? How do I help all sentient beings? But you can't get to the all unless you're first looking after yourself. The, the oxygen mask on the plane goes first on yourself, then you can put it on someone else. So the way to get someone to start to take responsibility is with their health. And then when they start taking responsibility for their health, then naturally the natural organic progression of them moving up the chain to them wanting to help others, help the collective happens as a almost like a flower opens because it's just natural that when you're feeling good inside, you want to help others. It's the true nature of what we are. Yeah. Does that answer it? It does. It does. And, you know, it sort of brings us to the next sort of quote I wanted to bring up. You said that, you know, in order for us to live in harmony with nature, we should be in harmony with ourselves. Uh, but it's only when we realize that we are enough that we can start to do so. And so I, I wanted to sort of understand how do you get to that point of realizing you're enough? Is it sort of like you said, you sort of, you get healthy and then you sort of have this um, improved mood regulation, sort of more, more stable in your, in your sort of thought process. You have more energy to deal with like all the emotional uh, baggage and the negative thoughts that you have. Is that sort of what you mean there? I'll use a personal story. So years ago, I got my heart broken. I moved into state for this girl that I really loved and she broke up with me after three months. And one day I'm lying on the ground of my office and I'm bawling my eyes out into it, like crying so hard. And I'm at the time I'm doing this self-development academy to do with spirituality, emotions. And one of the things I was being taught was that there's no such thing as positive and negative emotions. Emotions are neutral which is opposite to what most people are taught and believe. And so I'm lying on the ground crying and I say, I have nothing, I have nothing left to lose. And what I say in my psyche, I say, I surrender to sadness completely. Sadness, take me, teach me. And as I start crying, I literally go into the depths of sadness and out of it. And I start laughing hysterically almost like I'm doing psychedelics. I literally come out of it in bliss, pure joy, like the joy of God or like when I can't describe it other than it felt like the most ecstatic feeling ever. My fingers, I felt hot and cold. I literally had a transformational experience. And what I realized was sadness held the key to joy. So most people see emotions as negative, right? Anger is negative. Depression is negative. Sadness is negative. And so then they don't ask the emotion to teach them. What if anger was to teach you boundaries? What if anger was the push that you needed? So anger can be constructive or destructive. It's neutral. You pick what you want to do with it. Sadness could be sorrow or it could be the gateway to joy. You decide. 
How do you decide? By asking the emotion to teach you and not judging it. So the, the story of allowing the sadness to come, allowing the anger to come and then making uh, a request to learn from it. Depression, you think about when someone's depressed, they go completely inward. That's how you find the answer to something. You go inward. The difference is people then get stuck. I'm a bad person. I'm not enough. There's something wrong with me. Instead of I'm human, this is the spectrum of being here. I'll have sadness, I'll have joy, and I'm not to be too attached to either. And then they don't stick because you can get caught up in uh, the ecstasy, right? Or the happiness or the pleasure. And that's just as much as a trap as being stuck in depression and sadness. Interesting. Is there ever a time, do you think, that the emotions are just so overwhelming that you can't just accept them as it is? Yeah, I've experienced that heaps of times. Mm. It's, it's, it's a process. So I'm great with sadness now and I'm great with anger. It didn't start like this. This took years to build this level of like uh, emotional topography and resilience where I can have things happen in my life and I can process them really quickly. Like I had a counselor say to me, how do you process things so quickly? Well, they don't stick to me. Why don't they stick to me? Because I just accept them. I honor them. I acknowledge them, that they're normal. It's a part of being human. The trap is when they get caught in, they get stuck inside of you because you think there's something wrong with you. So to circle back to what you were saying, the story of me crying and the joy, the sadness taught me I was enough. The joy experience that came out of that where I was laughing hysterically, and in the book, there's a video. There's a QR code. If someone takes a photo of it, they can see the video. I put it on YouTube. I literally realized in that moment, I was enough. The breakup and the sadness was there to teach me I'm enough. Now, is sadness then such a negative thing if it's there to teach you that? What about, what do you think about in the case of like depression where, you know, I, I mean, I would argue that people are letting themselves feel that sadness and that loneliness and that worthlessness. And so how would you, how would you reconcile that with, you know, allow yourself to feel it? Because I do understand, I, I do totally get your point. Like I, and I actually, I agree with you because it's sort of like a meditative practice where you sort of watch feelings come and go. You're not trying to force them out. You're letting them be where they are. But how do you reconcile this concept with something like major depressive disorder? It's a combination of a few things. There'll be a mental emotional component and there'll be a nutritional component. 90% of the serotonin that your body makes, it comes from your gut. You can't, serotonin is your happiness hormone. You can't make happiness unless you're, you give your body the building blocks to make the chemicals of happiness. That comes down to what you eat. Hence why the book's a holistic approach, right? It's not just think. It's what you eat. Yes. It's how you sleep, what you're breathing, you're drinking. That's the whole rounded approach. So someone with like chronic depression, the first thing I would do is go, what emotion aren't you feeling and what are you eating? Right. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And you also mentioned in the book, um, one of your, was it one of your clients? Um, her name was uh, Kate who had uh, back pain and 
you know, you, you sort of narrowed that down. It was like sort of a postural issue, but really like the underlying cause was this sort of unresolved emotion that she had. And once yeah. you, you know, you sort of taught her to sort of deal with that, it started to go away. Yeah. So when I worked as a holistic health coach, people would come to see me where the medical system could no longer help them. And so this woman, she was in her early twenties, she was a dancer and she had severe back pain. She went to the neurosurgeons and I'm not bagging the medical system at all. I think it's like, it's great. It's got its time and place. If you're on your deathbed, that's the people you want, right? My approach is the preventative approach. So she went to see these people and they couldn't help her. They took the scans on the MRI and there's like, there's nothing wrong with your back, but she can't sit. She's in severe pain. And so what I had to do then was look at what's the underlying issue. What's her sleep like? What's her nutrition like? What's her mental emotional state like? And the real crux of it was she had a huge fear that she was going to be left alone because her dad had cancer. And what her father represented to her was safety and security because she was raised only by him. And so if he passed away, there goes the safety and the security. Now, from a mental emotional point of view, the base of your chakra, the base of your spine is usually tied to something to do with survival, safety, feeling a sense of a tribe. And so her body literally had wound itself so tight because of the mental emotional component of I'm literally not safe. And that's how she was creating the back pain. Mm. And so when we then got to the, the underlying issue, which is the sadness and the fear that she wasn't willing to feel and face, when we overcame that chasm, then the body started to heal. It didn't heal straight away, but that was the process then to healing because we got to the underlying issue. I find that super fascinating because I think most of us can relate to sort of when you, when you're very stressed, you're undergoing a period of time where, you know, you're under a lot of pressure. Uh, a lot of people, including myself and a lot of my friends, when they'll get really stressed, they'll like carry their, their tension in their shoulders and like yeah. they'll be super tight and then they'll get shoulder pain. And like when they work out, it's like, wow, I, I didn't have this before. Like, where is this coming from? Then, you know, finals week is over or, you know, that that tough week and your job is over and suddenly it's like, oh, like the pain is totally gone. So would you say that this this pain, as I'm understanding it, is sort of a fire alarm, sort of telling your body that there's something that there's something wrong that you need to attend to? Yes and no. It's never wrong. It's only the teacher. Pain is only a teacher. It's our judgments of it being right and wrong. Whenever there's pain in the body, the way to change the pain is to not try and change the pain. It's such a uh, paradox. The way to change the pain is to not change the pain. It's mm -hmm. to literally observe the pain, acknowledge it, accept that it's okay to be there because it's there to teach you something. And so because it's there to teach you something, what if the pain was to teach you not to betray yourself. That's kind of important, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want that pain to go away. 
So pain's like a little kid. It just wants to be seen, just wants to be heard, doesn't want to be told it's right or wrong. And when you go along that approach of honor, acknowledge and accept, then it, it does its own thing. I love that. I love that. I think, you know, there's, there's so much of what you said that I, that I very much resonate with. Uh, there's a, actually, there's a, a quote that I'm paraphrasing from Dr. Jordan Peterson. And he says, you know, it's hard to tell the truth because, you know, as humans, we don't really know the full truth, but at least you can try not to lie or say something that, that makes, that feels wrong. Right. And for me, that's manifested physically. Whenever I say something that I, I had a lot of sort of um, tendency to people please very much um, more when I was younger, but still, you know, and I guess everybody sort of has that to some degree, but whenever I would say something that I knew wasn't genuine, but I, I was just doing it to sort of people please, I would get a physical sensation of tightness throughout my body. And I yeah. think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that's sort of what, what we're getting at here. 100%. The yeah. body doesn't lie. The mind lies. The body mm. doesn't lie. Yeah, the body doesn't lie. You want me to tell you a cool story? I've had a serious yes, experience. Yes, yes, please. So in Australia, there's a famous Aboriginal rock called Uluru. It's one of the biggest natural man-made structures in the world. And I went hiking around Uluru. And it's a very sacred site to the Aboriginal people in Australia. And it has a male side and a female side. And I'm walking around the female side and you're pretty far away from the rock, but there's no fence. And so me and the guy that I was with decided to walk closer to the rock. And as we start walking closer to the rock, I literally feel a pain in my heart. And I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. I don't usually get that. And so we kept walking. Warning bell number one. Mm -hmm. Now we get to the edge of the rock. And we find a random pair of shoes, shoelaces tied together on the ground. We look at the tread of the shoe, brand new, brand new. We look up, maybe someone, you know, hiked the rock and they fell. Nah, shoelaces are tied together and there's no, there's no, like, there's no wearing out on the, on the sole of the shoe. The tread's fine. Put them back down. Warning number two. We keep walking now along the rock and I find a hole in the rock, like a little cave. It's an amphitheater. And we walk into this amphitheater and all of a sudden I get the heebie-jeebies. And I'm like, we are not supposed to be here at all. And I say to the guy that I'm with, and he's an experienced uh, bushman, hiker, like he's done lots of survival courses and knows a lot of things, right? I'm like, we need to leave right now. And he's like, you sure? I'm like, trust me, my intuition is literally saying like, leave now. So we start walking back the way we came. And I asked him, which way were the shoes facing? And he says, the shoes were facing away from the rock. I was like, okay, as we start walking away from the rock, all the tension in my body and the pain in my heart went away. Literally, my body was saying, you're not supposed to be here for whatever reason, whether it's you're a man and you're on the feminine side where mm -hmm. the women used to do their sacred work or there's something 
someone could be around the corner. My intuition and my body was like, do not do this. And it took three, three things, two physical and one random thing with these shoes for me to really get the message. And so it's so much easier if you just listen to your body. So much easier. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Do you think that, I don't know, for, for me for a while, you know, it's um, it's sort of difficult to see the thoughts and the feelings that you have every single day, just because it's sort of like, you know, fish, this is water. You know, if you've ever sort of read that, um, that story, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's difficult to recognize the things that we experience and that we feel every single day. For you, do you think that, um, like, what helps you with with sort of recognizing that when you were in a sort of state of of maybe ignorance? Is it is it a meditative meditative practice? What does that look like? It's a good question. I definitely am a big fan of meditation. Yeah, I think uh, five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, forty minutes, whatever you can afford. If you can't do twenty minutes, start with five minutes. And just build the habit of consistency because what it will do is start to remove you from the story going on in your head. The other thing I would say is what we resist persists. So the story in the head might be there to serve you. And we're going, why are you here? Like it's these same thoughts again. Not knowing that that could be really critical for your future. Like let's say someone has severe anxiety. And by them overcoming that, in the future, they then get to help people that have anxiety. And so we have a very microscopic view of life. Imagine if we had a universal viewpoint where we could see where everything was interconnected. Mm -hmm. I'm going to experience this, so then I can do this, and it's going to help these people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So imagine the difference between individual consciousness and collective consciousness. If you had collective consciousness, which is what meditation develops, then you wouldn't see anything as right or wrong because you knew why it was there for your individual journey and evolution. The reoccurring thoughts, sometimes they're to be overcome. Sometimes they're to be yielded to. Sometimes it's like, okay, what are you here to teach me? Okay, what are you here to teach me? Oh, you come up all the time as a reminder of that I have low self-worth or for me to stand up for myself or for me to um, realize that like I'm out of balance and you're asking me to spend more alone time so you can, so I have a connection to my soul, to my spirit. So then I can make decisions that are in alignment with the whole collective world and nature instead of my ego. Do you recommend a certain type of meditation? whatever you like. Mm. There's one I've gone through a few. For me, I go old school. Sit, focus on your breath. The thing I'll say about meditation is most people think that their mind should not be busy. That is not what meditation is meant to be. Meditation is the practice of returning your focus onto a single point. Mind is busy. Oh, my mind's busy. Bring it back to focus on my breathing. That process of training your mind onto the single focus is what meditation is meant to be. Now, by doing that, that's where the magic unfolds, where then 
eventually what happens is you start to feel really good. Like I've been meditating for about 10 years and took about 10 years until I really started feeling good in my meditations, right? Where I can sit in meditation. It doesn't happen every time. But let's say five days a week, it's busy noise in my head. The other two days, it's like pure like bliss. And then that lasts into the rest of the day. It lasts into your interactions with people. It lasts into your business interactions, into your relationships. It's like one of the most important things I think every human uh, ought to do for their health and for the betterment of everyone is just meditate. Five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever suits you. Yeah, meditation is great. I think um, I think one of the things that makes it difficult is I mean I've had this experience I think I think I don't know I want to say most people but many people who meditate at least that I know um, have sort of had this irrational sort of thought about meditation uh, where you sort of start to look at it as something that you have to do and takes away from your day because it takes time to do but actually it's it's exactly what you said I think when I'm really consistently meditating it carries over through the rest of my day and I'm more productive. I, I feel more, um, you know, like I'm kinder, like I'm more genuine, uh, like I have more control over my emotions. Um, and so it's, it's really odd to think that, you know, taking, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes, maybe a day to sort of sit alone and do nothing is actually having a greater impact on your time outside of that meditation window. Yeah, the flow and effect is massive. It really permeates everything. It really does. And with, you know, you spoke about the different forms of meditation. If people do well on guided meditation, do a guided meditation. If you like lying down, lie down. If you like doing breath work beforehand, do breath work. Find what works for you. The thing that worked well for me is I actually had a 30-day meditation challenge. But the goal wasn't to meditate. The goal was to sit for 20 minutes, for 30 days. And whatever my mind wanted to do, allow it to do. And I was just mm -hmm. going to return my awareness back to my breath. And then that way, the win was the act of just sitting, not on trying to get to the end result. So a process-orientated goal versus, um, let's say, an end goal, right? An outcome-related goal of I need to be mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. Because there's no way you need to be. Everything's fine the way it is in every moment. I find that that's difficult to do sometimes because oftentimes, at least you know, in the US, it seems very, we're always so goal-oriented. We're achieve, achieve, achieve. And so meditation has sort of become this thing that you do for a benefit, for a given benefit, right? And so I, I sometimes have found it hard to sort of stay in the process and just stay in it and just do it um, just for the sake of, of sort of doing it and stay in the moment. How do you find um, helps you with sort of staying in the moment when you're doing a meditation? You're meant to go off the course. You're meant to get caught up in the outcome and through the alchemy of sticking with it because you committed to it. That's when what happens is, you want me to speak from personal experience? Sure. What happens is then you reach outward excess, success and it means nothing to you compared to the success you feel inside. 
So most people in the world, from what I've observed, have outward excess and are empty on the inside. I want to be the person that's full on the inside and has that outward success, but I'm not attached to it because who I became in the process to creating that outward success is more important. The things on the inside can't be taken away. You can take away my book. You can take away the accolades, but you can't take away that I know inside I'm enough. You can't take away inside of me that I know how to reach bliss inside of me. Doesn't matter if my girlfriend, my parents, anyone is having a shit day. At any point, I can access inside of me like right now. And I've just dropped into complete like into my belly, into my hara, and I'm grounded. I'm at peace. Can't buy that. If you were to choose one or two of the habits you do every day to sort of maintain that feeling enoughness, what would you choose? Spending time in sadness. The opposite of what people would think. (laughs) Spend time with sadness and ask it to teach you. Or, you know, let's say you get angry when you think of I'm not enough. Spend time with anger. Spend time with accepting you're not enough and that's okay. It's the paradox. By accepting that it's okay to not be enough, then you don't have to be anything for anyone. And as a result, you're enough. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes all the sense in the world. Yep. That, they're probably the two things regarding that habit, but that question specifically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense because in the process of you allowing yourself to let go and feel whatever emotion that you need to feel, that is you being enough, right? Like that is you literally like letting go. And that's, I know, so I've experienced that it's, it's, it is telling your body that you're enough because you're not trying to do something. You're not trying to suppress something. You are just experiencing what is. Yep. We're the, we're the collective summation of everything. Good, bad, light, dark, yin, yang. We're everything. And when we really get in touch, and Jordan Peterson speaks about it like religiously, that mm-hmm. like each of us has a monster inside of us. Each of us has, you know, mm-hmm. these negative components. The quicker you can accept that those are just natural parts of you, you drop judgment for yourself and other people. And if the judgment's gone, then you don't need to be anything and they don't need to be anything for you. And then what emanates is their true self, who they really are. And by doing that, then the world essentially becomes a better place because the world doesn't need more judgment, it needs more love. But the only way to have more love is to accept the parts of us that are hard to accept. When we accept them in us inside ourselves, then we'll accept them inside others. I, I think, you know, especially as it relates to depression, uh, you, you mentioned that a lot of these things are there to teach us lessons. And in my experience and the experience of, of a lot of people that I know who have experienced very severe depression and recurrent depression, that is that is what it is it's like every time they go through something like that it's like 
all right, I, I get it. I understand. Um, maybe I'm not really being who I am. And I'm, you know, I, I sort of feel like my whole being is suppressed because that's what I'm doing to myself. Maybe it was, you know, based in childhood trauma. Maybe I wasn't allowed to be who I, who I actually am. And so I repressed my authenticity. And that's a habit that I've had for so long that it eventually led to depression. It's hard to sort of reason your way through that. But at the end of the day, sort of coming to that realization and sort of having that explanation for why you got to where you got to, um, I think is huge because it it develops and you called it love, whereas I sort of thought about it as compassion, but it's really, it's both, right? It's yeah. um, you sort of learn that because you dealt through X thing in childhood or, or, you know, you had a traumatic event, then you can, you can say, okay. I get it. I get why I'm here. I have compassion for myself. And only by having compassion yourself, can you finally start to change and start to rebuild a life that is, that is better suited for you. And I would say as well, that was important for your individual journey. So I'll share a personal example. Mm -hmm. My dad is a very alpha male father. He was in the special forces of an Eastern European country came out of hell, like jumped out of helicopters, left in the desert, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. He worked a lot when I was a kid. And at one stage I was like, how come my dad isn't around mm. now? It's very interesting because I, in the book, you saw the vision for the facility right at the end. That was awesome, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, if I have this big dream of what I want to create, I need a really strong work ethic, don't I? It's not going to happen with like luck and like, you know, you got to have to go do stuff. See, mm -hmm. do get. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be really important to then have a male role model who shows you what hard work and effort creates? Be very critical, right? To your journey. So then was my father actually taking something from me? Was I missing out or was I getting everything that I needed for my own journey? Yeah. One of us sees it from the wise man. The other one sees it from the little kid. Right. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, because it's almost like, it's almost like levels of perception. It's like the first level is that child. And then you sort of evolve and you can see it in this in this new in this new upgraded way. That's like, okay, you know, yes, that's that's true. This hurt. But also, it's true that this provided me with a benefit. And this is this formed me, you know? Yep. It's the what we spoke about that looking at from the microscopic view or having the collective viewpoint of high awareness yeah yeah and that sort of goes back to your you know sort of i we all level where you sort of start out just thinking about yourself you're sort of in survival mode and then once you get to this place of being healthy and again you know jordan peterson talks about this a lot is if you want to change the world start with yourself right then you progress to this sort of level of thinking about your community and, you know, maybe the county that you live in. And then finally you get to this all that you're talking about, this sort of like collective consciousness where you can feel like you, uh, you know, you know, you have a something to give to the world and you're going to do your best to try to, to try to accomplish that. Um, so, so I, I love that. I love that message. And it makes a lot of sense that sort of progression through the different levels there. Why do you think 
sort of circling back to a point that we talked about earlier, uh, you mentioned that, you know, your entire book is, of course, holistic, right? It, it goes through everything because you can't just have one piece and then miss all the rest of them. Uh, usually that doesn't work. It didn't work in my case. And usually, you know, you have to sort of look at it from many different angles if you want to solve a complex problem. Why do you think that that's like so cringeworthy to the sort of conventional medical paradigm? The way they trained. So they trained mm. in um, what's called allopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. Allopathic is we treat the symptoms. Holistic is we find the underlying cause. Even the spelling of the word holistic got changed by the medical system. Holistic is spelled H-O-L, right? Mm-hmm. Originally, it was W-H-O-L. And then histic. That makes a sense. Hole, yeah. Right? Versus a hole in the ground versus the whole collective or the whole pie. So it's literally, I think it just comes down to the training. Um, but I think the paradigm's changing. I think more and more people are that are in the normal medical system are open to having a dialogue. The, the problem is, is that we get into this space on both camps of you're wrong, I'm right. Mm-hmm. And this creates then the polarity game. Right. This is this is a form of ignorance, in my opinion. Right. Again, circling back, if we go to the higher level of consciousness where we see everything, that person's really important for something. Now, can I find out what that is? So let's say they have a viewpoint, right? Where they're like, well, we only need to treat the symptoms. Well, if you're, you know you're on your deathbed. You want someone who's going to do everything they can to try and rectify the bleeding right now. You don't need a preventative measure. You need someone who's going to save your life. Of course. The problem, like I said, is where we start to judge them as right and wrong, which is a a reflection of our own internal judgment. It's much better than to have a dialogue saying, why do you believe that? Like a personal example, I wrote a book on climate change. I've read Bill Gates's book on climate change. We have vastly differ, differing views of how to go about things. Most people that I've come across think he's not a really good human. Mm. And I had somewhat this opinion as well until I read his book. And what I realized was he has an underlying belief system that technology is the catalyst for human development, growth, and evolution. So then he invests his energy and resources into technology. If I have a belief that living in harmony with nature, because that's been my experience, creates health for me and the planet, well, then I'm going to do things and pick things that are more harmonious with that belief system. He's not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. We just have differing viewpoints. And by having a dialogue, then we can understand each other and then come together and work together. But if we're on the spectrum of who's right, who's wrong, it's just a disaster and it just leads to more suffering, more violence. And that's what the world's got at the moment. A hundred percent. That's uh, that's part of what motiv- motivated me to write my book is, you know, part of what led me to sort of uh, get to this state of depression was that um, first of all, my ego was pretty inflated, which means that you can't really see the world as it is. You see the world as, you know, through the, through the sort of filter of your own, um, your own belief system. Um, and my belief system get. was, yeah, yeah. Right. 
my belief system was very flawed. And, you know, I took the lesson from depression, which was exactly that. And, um, and I realized that I wasn't the only person that that happened to. And so I, I realized, you know, maybe, you know, sharing this, this story of, of learning how to relearn and sort of dump old beliefs and sort of set new values that I actually think are important. Maybe that's something that other people could benefit from, especially at a time when people are so polarized and so unwilling to hear the other perspective without vitriol. And, uh, you know, I, I, so I totally resonate with what you're saying. So how important then was depression then to your story and then to help others? Pretty important, right? Very important. Very important. Yeah. But in the moment, you know, of course I, I hated it and I, you know, I resented that depression and I resented sort of even myself for, for experiencing that, but you know, you hit the nail on the head and, and, you know, I had to let myself, I let myself fall into that fully so that I could not consciously, of course, but I just, I did, I just did. Um, and, and that gave me the lessons that I, that I just shared. Well done. Thank you. I wanted to sort of transition to principle number two, you know, we're obviously not going to get through all of them, but uh, you, you cite an article from the journal nature, which basically shows that uh, deforestation, loss of species, diversity makes pandemics um, not only more likely, but probably worse as well. Can you explain how that's possible? Because this is this is sort of like a a big component, in my opinion, to your argument that our health is very much tied to the health of the environment. Yeah, this was interesting when I came across this. This was uh, especially what we experienced in the last two years, right? Yes. So... Essentially, there was an article published basically on why de deforestation and extinction make pandemics more likely. And in essence, what the researchers concluded was that as we cut down the forests, animals that have diseases transmissible to humans, like bats, become more likely to be in contact with humans. And because then they're more likely to be in contact with humans, more disease is created. So as we change the landscape from forest to urban, we increase the rate and likelihood of disease for us. Won't there come a time when, especially sort of thinking to your, to your pictures at the end, where we're sort of like living more in harmony with nature, you know, you see the buildings that have like literally what looks like a park on the roof, which is incredible won't there come a time when we're so integrated with nature that we we are just by necessity more in contact with with animals and could that not also further the spread of viruses from animals to humans potentially it's definitely mm. possible um, mm. what i would say buddy is those animals that are deep in the forest they usually don't inhabit on like rooftops or like where there's gardens and stuff it's usually a different type of animal like bees mm. and and things like that. Um, it's definitely possible, but yeah. Hmm. Or is that is that also, uh, you know, you mentioned the loss of species diversity, I guess, by bringing back the diversity with sort of being more in harmony with nature, that would also sort of help with that. Right? Yeah, definitely. That's fascinating. You know, I, I found a study um, sort of midway through the pandemic, which showed that uh, there's a, a sort of type of air pollution called like 
particulate matter 2.5, which is basically just sort of denotes the size of the air particles in, in the air. Yeah. Um, and it's linked to the risk of blood clots, respiratory conditions, and and actually, fascinatingly, and I came across this because of Dr. Zach Bush, so this was not my own research, but I did find the sources he is. And it's linked to a around a 10% increase in the COVID-19 death rate. So every, every tiny little increase in this PM 2.5 actually leads to this pretty remarkably high increase in the COVID-19 death rate, which I thought sort of also related to this, this argument. 100%. One thing I couldn't understand was the way the immune system works is threefold. Number one, the way the body, de the number one way the body detoxifies itself is through its breath. What were we told to do? Cover up. Number two, the way the immune system works is through what you eat. There's hardly any education on that. Number three, sunlight helps increase your immune system. Told to stay indoors. The three facets that create health and immunity, we were told to do the opposite of. That's not me saying that. There's so much research on this. So I don't know. 100%. Seemed a bit... Con I understand in some levels why they suggested what they did. Um, what I would have loved was some more education regarding how to be preventative. You know, and I know there's, there's a lot of stuff coming out now post-pandemic post of like what was truthful, what was not. And... Um, mm -hmm. I think the next couple of years would be very interesting. I think trust was broken for a lot of people in the public and people that were, um, had faith in our, in our medical system and in our governments. I think some people lost that, right? Mm -hmm. Because they essentially weren't given a choice. And when you take someone's choice away, then I'll give it to you in a really good analogy. If someone said you can't do something, what's your first inkling? I'm going to go it. do it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. When you give someone two options and you say you decide, you're an adult, you make an informed decision. It's a very different way to relate to people. The first one is like an adult and a child. The second one is an adult and an adult. Yeah, so I think, 100%. I think more people need to just learn how to be healthy and then they can make healthy decisions. Healthy decisions, healthy people, healthy planet. I think you're right. I think some people came away from the pandemic and they had much less trust in sort of health authorities and sort of the conventional uh, wisdom that they espouse. But I, But I also think there was also a part, and I don't know how big this part of the population was, but I think there's another part of the population which actually got even more entrenched into their belief system that, you know, you know, scientific research is God and that this is sort of like the pseudo religion that, you know, you can't question, which is, of course, the absolute opposite of what the essence of science is all about. Science is supposed to be about questioning. It's supposed to be about new information coming up and replacing the old, but, you know, it sort of seems like, I don't know, do you think that that, that happened with some people where they sort of got more entrenched and, and now they're even less open-minded? Yes, but not for the reason that you think. 
they looked for only the research to validate what they see do get. So they listened to the authority. They didn't actually go look at the science. Right. Because the science said opposite. Yes, it did. Right. And then you could find science that validated both. And then you get to make a decision. Mm -hmm. That's the point of being an adult. But if you gave away your power and just looked for ways to validate what you believed, whether that was for or against, that to me is a form of unawareness. When I went to school, I did a class called philosophy and ethics. And the teacher was the head of the religious department. I went to a Christian school. And she described herself as a Buddhist Christian at a Christian school. She's the head of the department. She's describing herself as a Buddhist Christian. Whenever she would give us a topic, we would only receive full marks if we could argue for and against a particular topic. If we lent one way, we failed. So as an 18-year-old, I had to argue for abortion, for and against, at every level, government, women's rights, spiritually, everything, for and against. That served me really well then to staying open to other people's opinion and having the dialogue. Dogma creates disease. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm vegan, you're carnivore. Not having the awareness that everything is a season in life, everything is impermanent, everything is constantly changing. And when you're dogmatic, you're not changing, therefore you're stuck. But if I'm fluid, if I stay open, then when my body changes into a different season, I don't have to go through the pains of life because I'm willing to move with the flow of life and where it's going. That's a metaphor for the way we relate with ourselves and with other people. Wow. And, you know, well, first of all, how much time do we, do you still have? I still got about, what's the time? 30, like 20, 30 minutes max. Okay, perfect. Perfect. You mentioned moving through the seasons and sort of being open enough to recognize, recognize that you talked about this quite a bit in your book and I, I really loved it. Um, and it's not just to do with sort of seasonal eating, which is how most people sort of look at it. So yeah. sort of tell me about that. Tell me about the seasons that, you know, we were sort of evolved to go through, but now we're sort of living in this summer where we're just always super hyper productive. Sure. So the first thing is understanding that we are nature. Our bodies are nature. We come from nature. And there's a quote at the end of the book that really sums it up best. I'll finish with it. Typically, we went through four seasons. Summer, autumn, winter, spring. Summer, you act. Autumn, you harvest. Winter, you rest. Spring, you plant. Our world only does three seasons a year. Maybe even one. Act, do, 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 do. Reap, 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 reap. We forget rest. Rest and rejuvenate was critical then to making the process and the circle or the cycle go around. Mm -hmm. So then it's no surprise then that people have health challenges because they're not living in harmony with the natural way. And what I've observed is for each winter that was missed, you have to pay that back at some point. 
because that's the math equation. So it's easier if you just live in harmony with nature. That doesn't mean you have to take three, four months off and do nothing and stay in a cave. But what it means is you structure your day, you structure your week, you structure your month to have some type of rest, regenerate, uh, regenerative process, whether that might be meditation, going on holidays, doing nothing. And doing nothing doesn't mean being on your phone. That's stimulation. Because when you do, you're actually going to be more productive. You're going to have more energy. You're going to have more vitality. You're actually going to be happier because you're living in harmony and in accordance with what you really are and the way the rules of the game are made for you and for everyone. Do you think that you can sort of like, quote unquote, like biohack your way out of seasons in the sense that, for example, you live somewhere in the Northern hemisphere, like I live in Michigan. So, you know, we do go through a pretty long, uh, arduous winter, um, but our, our summer is also pretty nice as well. Um, but really, you know, the way that we are living is exactly what you said we're doing and we're sort of like reaping, but we're not really resting. Traditionally, we would, you know, part of what Thanksgiving was about, as, as I sort of understand it evolutionarily is, you know, you sort of eat a, as much food as you possibly can. The fruit is ripe. You're sort of like, you know, you build up fat mass to sort of stay through the winter. And then that's where you have your rest period. So a few questions here, a few different ways we can go here, but is that sort of a healthy thing that we should strive to do is sort of almost mimic that where, you know, you do gain more weight closer to the winter and sort of like the cut happens naturally in the summer. Or do you think that we can sort of supplement with like vitamin D and maybe have some red light therapy during the winter and maybe buy like, you know, these light therapy devices and UV devices. And can we biohack our way out of that? Or should we find a way to to actually really stay in harmony with the nature around us. Let me answer your question with a question. Why would you want to buy a hack your way out of it? My first inclination is to answer with to be more productive and to maintain a summer year round. <laughs> There's your answer. Right. So to avoid the natural cycle to yeah. do more. Yeah. And that's, and that's the illness of our culture. More is right. not better. Right. Why are you doing more so you can be more? Right. Why are you trying to be more? Because I'm not enough. Yeah, there we go. Full circle. Yeah. How would you how would you sort of reconcile the fact that many people, you know, no matter what season it is, they do have to work really hard and they and they can't, you know, sort of hit the brakes for a few months at a time. Like how would you just include more, you know, maybe in, increase the sleep quantity and quality or, you know, increase meditative sessions during the winters? Like how how would you sort of go about about doing that even if you have to really be at the you know grind the whole year first thing i'll i'll say is why do you have to be at the grind of the whole year like if you're like a single mm. parent and you've got to like mm. work your ass off to like feed three kids fair enough right if that's the example we're going with cool let's go with that but if it's not that and it's just like I'm a single guy and I just want to be super productive and like reach my goals. That's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. um, we'll use the first example. It's going to be really important then that your day-to-day -day habits have a level of rejuvenation in them. Your sleep has to be 
Excellent. Time alone, whether it's five minutes or 20 minutes or whatever it is you can afford, is critical because that is where the rejuvenation happens. So depending on where you are in your life and what's going on, you make it work. That's why my my book and my process is principle-based. It's not the rules. It's the mm-hmm. principles. So you make it work with whatever your circumstances is. If you can have two months off, have two months. If you can have two weeks, have two weeks. If you can have two hours, have two hours. But that two hours is going to be better than having nothing. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I, I love the way that your book is structured because there's obviously there's the principal part, the beginning of each chapter, and then you have a whole bunch of exercises that you can. So it's not just the theory, it's putting it into practice. Um, and I, I heard you talk about this on another podcast where you, know, you mentioned bio-individuality, um, which speaks to exactly what you're saying right now. You know, you, you can't, it's not the rule. You don't just go and copy, copy that rule and paste it onto yourself. You go and see what works for you find the meditation that works for you, find the movement practice that works for you. You know, all of these things are, uh, you know, they can be modified to sort of suit your, your needs and the things that you enjoy. There's a reason why it's like that as well. I want you to be the authority. I don't want me to be the authority. I want you to build a relationship with your body and your intuition and trusting yourself where you then know if I do this, I feel good. If I don't do this, I feel shit. Mm-hmm. Then you don't need no scientific journal, even though there's 180 references in my book. Then you don't need any scientific journal to teach you what you know inside to be true for you. You don't have to look to the expert or the authority outside of you. You are the expert or authority. It's inside of you. And where you need assistance, then you get assistance from someone who's already walked the journey, is more mm-hmm. qualified in that certain thing. And that's essentially the journey from the child to the adult, because then the adult can take responsibility for themselves. So that's why the book is so practical, because I needed people to see what I see, do what I do, and then they'll get the results that they want. It has to be easy. It has to be take a photo of a QR code, get the meditation has to be like, try this quick breathing exercise. So then there's something that it's imprinted in the inside them. They're embodied something. And then that seed will grow over time. I don't know if I answered your question. I think I rambled, but no, you did. You did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Also the QR codes were a nice touch. I really enjoyed those. Yeah. 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 I was just like taking my phone out like all the time and just scanning. (laughs) It was great. Um, So to finish off here, which, well, we have the final three questions after this question, which aspect of life would you tell someone to start with, you know, in order to change their health? If they're really sort of confused, there's a lot of conflicting information out there. Where would you tell them to begin? Eat certified organic. Eat certified organic. Start there. Reason why I say start there. Twofold. Most people think that like certified organic is just like overpriced hippie food. And it's really not. When you read my chapter on Nourish, you get a really good understanding of soil science and how it really works. But in essence, 
certified organic is farmed in a way that's more harmonious with nature because they don't use pesticides and artificial chemicals. Pesticides are sprayed on conventional produce and pesticides have been linked to cancer. Not only are they linked to cancer, 40% of insect species are threatened with extinction due to pesticides and conversion of land to intensive forms of agriculture. That means 40% of the bees, 40% of all the insects. Bees are really important to growing food. When you eat certified organic, as I said, you have less uh, toxins in your body. The second thing is it's got more nutrition. So then you can repair your body better. Mm-hmm. And when something has more nutrition, you actually eat less because your body has this thing called satiety. Satiety is fullness. When something is really nutrient dense, it's got lots of uh, nutrition. Therefore, it fills you up. Your body has reached max level. So there's threefold. Number one, certified organic, less toxins. Number two, more nutrition. Number three, it's better for the planet because of the way it's farmed. That's an, so that's the first first thing for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And, and you know, that makes a lot of sense, um, especially considering the fact that, as you talk about in your book, we are nearing the sixth mass extinction event. And, you know, what what would be a huge contributing factor to that if the bees were gone, if the insects were gone, that literally pollinate the food, you know, that we eat every single day? I think I can't remember the exact statistic in the book, but I'm sure it was like 80% of the food grown. Um, maybe it's in Australia. Pretty sure it might be in Australia. 80% of the food grown that we eat has some level of influence through bee pollination. Yep. Yep. And, you know, you also mentioned this in your, we didn't get to talk about it, but in your chapter on, on you know, connect you know, talking about radiation and, you know, how things like cell towers and, uh, you know, those affect the pollination behavior of, of insects as well. Yeah, that, that was scary when I came across that, how it changes their flight paths and their behavior. And yeah, like, and then the, like the levels of like EMF pollution from the 60s to now, it's like a thousand times more uh, radiation that we swim in. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty scary. It's pretty scary. Um, although there's a, there's quite a bit that you can do about it, as you also outline in that chapter. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely some things everyone can do. So to wrap up here, well, first, tell people where they can find out more about you. Sure. So um, you can find me on Facebook, on Instagram. It's just my first name, Ante, A-N-T-E. My surname Strika, S-T-R-I-K-A. Um, Or you can find my book on Amazon. Just type in Primal Move. Uh, I have a podcast, the Primal Move podcast. And yeah, oh, my website, my first name, surname.com. Yeah, so places people can reach out to me. Awesome. And I'll link to those in the show notes as well. Uh, Now, to finish off, I have these final three that I usually ask people at the end. So what are the top three most influential books you've read? Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, 
feel like I need to go look at my bookshelf. Let me think. How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy by Paul Check. He was one of my teachers and mentors. And the third one, uh, The Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama. It's an excellent book. It's actually, I think uh, they're making a movie on this now with uh, Desmond Tutu as well. So the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. Yeah, he wrote, they wrote a book together called The Book of Joy. It's very, very good. Okay, I'm writing that down. Um, what is your morning routine? Good question. So this is what it usually involves. I wake up, I make my bed, and then I go for a walk in a national park on the beach. And what I'll do is I will do some incantations, right? Because when I wake up, my mind is so busy and there's usually a negative stream of thoughts. And so what I've done is start to then focus on what I want straight away, right? So I'll say some incanta incantations and then I will say about 20 things that's great about myself. So it might be like, you're smart, you're humble, you're determined, those type of things. After I finish that, I do this practice where I say, I love you, Ante. You are lovable. You're worthy of being loved. It's safe to be loved. It's safe to be you. And I actually try and connect to the feeling of that. That usually takes me about half of my walk. Then I come back from my walk. And I sit on this hill overlooking the ocean and I'll meditate. And it might be 20 minutes of just silent meditation and 20 minutes of doing like a Joe Dispenza guided one, depending on how I feel like. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's both. It just depends. Some days it's 40 minutes, sit straight in meditations. Other days it's just whatever. It's just about showing up. Then I'll jump in the ocean, go for a swim. And then I'll come back and start my plan for the day. And I schedule into my calendar what needs to be done, what's a priority, and I break it, break it down into little chunks of like, uh, what are the critical things? If I could only get one thing done today, what's that one thing? And that's where I start investing my energy. And what's your favorite podcast that you listen to right now? The Joe Rogan experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the ones with Graham Hancock and all the ancient ancient civilization stuff like i geek out oh uh, don't even get me started on that stuff yeah <laughs> so good my family's just been obsessed with that with the ancient <laughs> apocalypse documentary yeah it's awesome so good awesome ante thank you very much for your time i very much appreciated getting to talk to you and getting to talk about your book for those of you listening please go to amazon and i believe it's only available on kindle for now yeah, only available on Kindle, I think, in okay. the USA. Oh, no, but you yeah. can buy it physical as well from, I think, Amazon Australia or from Lulu. Okay, okay perfect. Yeah, and I'll also have the link to to the book um, uh, in the show notes so everyone can go can go check that out and grab a copy. Thanks for having me on your show. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. 
And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.